Welcome to episode 61 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today we're going to talk about Winter Song. Yay! Yay! So, JJ, as we record this, you are just coming off launch week. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been quite exhausting. So I was telling. So I went. I had my launch party out in my hometown um, of Pasadena, and it went very well. Uh, I believe some of the podcast listeners showed up there, so thank you for coming. It was really lovely to see you guys. Um, it was great, but I was telling... Uh, Roshni Chakshi and Marie Lu, the two women I was having the event with and friends of mine, I was like, I don't know how you ladies do this on tour because it's just tiring. And I wasn't even gone for a full week and nor did I do an event every day. I just, but it was, you know, it was just exhausting to me, all the travel and, and, you know, getting ready and, you know, meeting mm-hmm. people and saying hi. It was just very, very tiring to me. Yeah. So. Well, you Instagrammed the whole thing on the Griffin teen. So I was like mm-hmm. following that on their Instagram all day. That was so fun. It was fun. They uh, perhaps unwisely gave me the keys to their, uh, <laughs> to, to their Instagram. They're like, do you want to do an Insta story? Is that sure? Um, mostly it's just, it was just pictures of, um, food. <laughs> <laughs> because I went good food, <laughs> good food, very good food. Uh, I I was out there and I, I met another friend of mine, Grace, and she basically was like, "I see what you're doing. You're stocking up on all of the Asian food before you have to go back." And I said, "Yes, absolutely." <laughs> um, so yeah, I am fresh off of my debut release, and I'm glad to be home. I need the break. Like I said, I don't know how my friends on tour do it because it's just, it's just tiring. (laughs) So what, I guess I have a whole bunch of different questions for you about the book and about the process of writing the book and about the book, the process of uh, launching it and how your week has been. Um, I'm so excited by the time this airs, it will have been out for about two weeks. Um, so that's plenty of time for you guys to all have gone out and read it. And I hope you do. Cause it's a fantastic book. Maybe um, we'll pull up a spoiler wall. Just be yeah. like, spoilers <laughs> after this point. I'll, I'll make a note of it in the show notes when I edit them. Yes. Um, so yeah. So one of the first questions that I had for you is you, obviously have worked in the publishing industry. So you have been on the other side of the fence and you know what that is like. So you probably had a really good idea of what to expect, um, on the other side as the author going through the process. Um, but was there anything about the process of getting your book published that surprised you either in that it's something that you didn't anticipate or something that, um, you didn't think would, had that you wouldn't react to in the way that you ended up reacting. Did you have any like surprises in the process? Procedurally, no, no surprises on that front, but I will say that I was sort of taken aback by the feeling of imposter syndrome. (laughs) And I know a lot of people um, talk about it and get it. And so I knew to expect it intellectually, you know, that 
that, and I don't know if you guys know what imposter syndrome is. Actually, Marie wrote a post about it on Pub Crawl a while ago, so I'll link to that as well. But this feeling that either your successes or any sort of achievements that you have are unearned and that any point people will find out you're a fraud or a failure and that that's kind of what imposter syndrome is. And it does affect women more than it affects men, according to studies. Um, so I, I knew to expect it because pe- my friends have, you know, talked to me about it. You know, my author friends have, you know, sort of talked to me about it and I've kind of sat with them and be like, no, no, you, you're not a failure and you're not an imposter. It's, it's fine. So I, I knew it, but I didn't expect, I guess, to feel it. <laughs> not that, I mean, that makes me sound super full of myself. I mean, don't get me wrong. I am full of myself, but like, <laughs> I didn't expect. Because I thought, okay, I'm intellectually prepared, I, you know, that I wouldn't feel it so deeply, but yet I still did. So things like, um, I don't really read reviews and they don't normally bother me and they really don't. Um, but it, it's still that kind of, it's like a little psychic ding, you know, when you hear even, and this is true too, like even reviews that are good, but have like the one little, oh, but this element didn't work for me, but the overall review is great. It's still true that that one little negative thing will stick in your brain. And it's not even that it bothers me that people dislike or like it or anything like that. What bothered me was that I couldn't stop hearing their voices when I was writing. And that took me a long time to kind of get over or not even get over, but to sort of push out all these competing voices um, when it came to writing book two, because then it then it wasn't going to be my book. It was going to be a crowdsourced book. And so so that that took a while. And that did sort of that did surprise me how much that psychically affected me, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah. procedurally, nothing's a surprise. <laughs> So what would you say is the moment that you felt like, oh, this is really happening? Like some people describe it as when they get their first pass pages. Some people describe it as when they get their, you know, galleys. Was there a moment for you when you were like, oh, wow, this is going to be a real book? I think actually it was seeing my cover. Because... You know, because, I guess because seeing my cover was kind of the first time there's like an external, you know, external manifestation of someone else's idea of my book, not just my idea of my book, but someone else's idea of my book. And that was made literal into a cover. So I think that was kind of the moment that was like, oh, that's it's going to be a real book. I mean, it was very exciting seeing first pass pages because first pass pages is when you see your book as it would be laid out in a print book. So the mm-hmm. fonts are there, you know, the, any of the page elements, like little design elements, all that's there. Um, so it was exciting seeing those obviously is exciting seeing my galleys and it was also super exciting seeing the finished copy. But I think the very first moment where I was like, Oh, this is something beyond me. This is something that beyond this, something that's just in my head is seeing the cover. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when, so you wake up on the day that your book is going to publish, which was February 7th, which was a Tuesday mm-hmm. and all books come out on Tuesday. Well, mm-hmm. not all, but most books most. come out. Tuesday. Yeah. And you knew that you were going to have your launch party that night. And so you kind of had to wait all day for that to happen. And I'm sure you were flooded with congratulations from people and text and Twitter and all that, but you were kind of building up to that moment of the launch party 
And after that, when you go home, you go to sleep and you wake up the next day, like, what is it like to wake up the day after your book comes out? Because you've been kind of building toward this like one day and now it's happened. And then what does it feel like in that aftermath? Uh, relief. (laughs) (laughs) I know this is probably untrue, but you know, I, and I, and I know a lot of authors say this and I, and I say it and I told Kelly this, and I think I've mentioned it on the podcast. I was like, I'm never reading my book again, <laughs> or at least I'm never going to read it from start to finish again. Um, cause I, you know, leading up to release anyway, you're answering all these questions and you're, uh, giving interviews and stuff like that. I don't know how many times I've answered the question, where did the inspiration for your book come from? <laughs> I promise not to ask you that. <laughs> well, you know anyway, but it's, you know, the, and I was like, kind of like, oh, now I understand why actors or celebrities can sometimes give really silly answers on press tour just because they've, you know, had this, had that question asked of them so many times. But I think it was mostly relief that I didn't have to think about my book today, that I didn't have to talk about it to anyone except people who I was with at the time, which was my family and my friends. So, um, and I was able to talk about the book as a thing separate from me, you know, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's now it's out in the world and it's a product in people's hands. And so I don't have to worry about the contents anymore. I don't have to talk about the contents anymore. So that was basically my prevailing feeling was relief. And I know Mm -hmm. it's not true that I'm not going to, that I'm never going to think about my book again. Of course, I'm going to think about my book again. And of course I'm going to talk about my book again. And of course I'm happy to talk about my book, but that the next day absolutely was just relief. (laughs) (laughs) I can imagine that. I can imagine that. My mom was like, Oh, uh, do you want to go to a Korean spa? <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, I'm so close to taking you up on this offer, but I think I promised Rosh that we were going to sushi again." So I was like, "Maybe not." But yeah, it's very tempting though. <laughs> but you did get a massage today, right? No, tomorrow I'll get one. Tomorrow. tomorrow. Nice. I was smart before I left. I was like, "I'm going to schedule a massage for when I come back." <laughs> that is good thinking. Good planning ahead for sure. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the book itself and some of your characters and the plot and things like that. And I think the thing that I wanted to start with is the Goblin King himself, because of course he is the character that so many people were excited about before the book came out. And I've seen so many people talk about him since because he is such a mysterious figure in the book. I mean, in this first book, we don't even know what his name is. And so much of his attraction and relationship with Lisa is about the mystery surrounding him and her trying to get closer to him and trying to figure out who he is um, as a character. And you have said before that he is not your ideal romantic hero. He's not the kind of person that you find attractive in a book. Oh God, no, not at all. Which is so funny because that's, you know, everybody is so swooning over him and that's not, um, he's not your type. No, I mean, I, I like his type in a literary sense and that I like reading about characters like the mm-hmm. Goblin King. Um, but I am not at all somebody who finds it attractive in real life. I'm the sort of person who's basically would just be like, just please get over yourself. Um, I, I would like my romantic partners to come to me fully formed, <laughs> you know, with no emotional baggage. Uh, but, and, and to be completely honest, I like 
safety and mysterious characters like the Goblin King are not safe at all. But that, I mean, obviously there's the appeal in that. There is appeal in danger and in mystery, and I completely understand it because I wrote it. But personally, no, (laughs) no, 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 not even (laughs) close. Also, I like to laugh. I think for me, what's more attractive than the kind of like mysterious brooding guy is somebody who can make me laugh. So for Mm -hmm. me, when it came to having crushes on anyone, it was always the class clown, you know, and not kind of like the hot, mysterious person. Mm-hmm. In, in class as always if you if the way to my heart is to make me laugh and i don't really i didn't really write the goblin king as having that much of a sense of humor he has some but not really <laughs> <laughs> so when you were writing this book you have talked on the podcast before in general terms about writing um the point or the emotional through through line of your story. And in Winter Song, it's definitely Liesel's, um, you know, it's her emotional journey that we're reading and that we're going along with as we read. And so the book ends, I guess here we're going to get into some right, spoiler, spoiler wall, you spoiler guys. zone, spoiler, spoiler wall. Zone. <laughs> <laughs> but the book um, does not end with a romantic, with the Goblin King, you know, and her being together and happy and ruling underground forever and ever. Um, you know, people have described it as a cliffhanger, which I don't think it's a cliffhanger, but there is some, it's not resolved in, in a traditional sense. Yeah. It's, and it's, did you know that you were going to end it that way when you started writing? No. I mean, emotionally, to some extent, yes. But so I, you know, I think I've mentioned in the podcast before that I'm much better with beginnings and first halves than I am sort of with the second half. And I kind of knew as I was writing, the stakes I had set up were pretty much if she stays, she dies and doesn't get to do whatever she wants to do. Um, and I couldn't figure out how I wanted to resolve it. The romance was actually secondary. And I know a lot of people wanted Liesl and the Goblin King to end up together. And to me, that wasn't at all that important at all. Like, I wasn't interested in telling that story. I wasn't interested in giving them a happily ever after. In this book, I don't think that she... I think it would have been a downer ending, personally, <laughs> if she had decided to sacrifice everything that she actually wanted from life just to be with a guy. I don't think that's a happy ending. At the same time, of course I want them to be happy together. I just didn't think, I just thought it was secondary to Liesel's kind of coming into herself and discovering what she wants for herself first and the importance of being selfish about what she wants first. Mm -hmm. But I did like in the writing of it, as I was writing and as I was sort of discovering and building the rules of the underground and all the old laws and stuff, I was like, well, I don't think this can have a happy ending. And as I was getting closer to the end, I was like, well, I know I have to make a decision about what that ending is going to be. And I kind of knew at the back of my head that she couldn't stay. She couldn't stay. So I purposefully wrote towards that. But I, mm-hmm. I mean, I can see why people's Uh, say it's a cliffhanger. There are other questions I don't resolve. I don't resolve the big Mm. world, the big world building question of what happens when she leaves, because there's a, you know, obviously you need to have the life of a maiden given to the land or else the world 
falls apart. So mm-hmm. I don't answer that question because I have a book too, obviously, <laughs> but I also don't answer that question because I also think it's irrelevant to mm-hmm. the, to her emotional journey. Like that wasn't the point. Like, you know, the whole point of the book, or at least for me was basically telling myself and telling Liesl, it's okay to be selfish about what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, you've given, you've been selfless and you've been giving of yourself to other people for so long that you've lost sight of who you are. So it's okay to be selfish and it's mm-hmm. okay to let yourself be selfish and it's okay to, and I wanted to, her to have that permission. So in many respects, I understand why people are like, what? But <laughs> I didn't think it was the question that needed to be answered by the end of this book. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it is a hopeful ending. It's not a happily ever after, you know, in a traditional romantic sense, but Lisa leaves to pursue her life, which is a hopeful thing. Um, so I don't think it ends on a downer note at all, even if it's not resolved, even if the romantic line isn't resolved the way we all might want it to be. But I think it's, I think it's a hopeful ending. Yeah. I mean, again, because the romance was sort of secondary in terms of what the what the what the point of the book was the point of the book wasn't the romance to me the mm-hmm. point of the book was Liesl's journey so not resolving i mean don't get me wrong as well i do want them to end up together but i also delight in my readers tears <laughs> like when when people at me or you know send me messages like why did you do that my heart is broken i just kind of sit there going <laughs> <laughs> phenomenal cosmic power (laughs) exactly it's like i bathe in my reader's tears that's why i look so young (laughs) that's a good tip (laughs) so yeah so what what else what else is there anything that you have been dying to say about either the book itself or the process that you've never had an opportunity to divulge i guess i I wanted to talk a little bit about Kitta, Liesl's sister. Mm. Um, And I guess because like a lot of people, some people really love her. Some people don't. I mean, that's kind of the case with all female characters anyway. But I love Kitta because I think Kitta, I think she's more like me than Liesl, actually. (laughs) That's that's the thing is that people have asked me, you know, like, oh, you know, what are, is there any part of yourself that's in your characters or is the main character like you, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, all of the characters have something of me in them, but I think actual personality wise or just what she likes, she's generally happy. Keita is generally happy and um, sanguine about things. And she's just, you know, she's kind of shallow and frivolous. And that is me to a T. So I have a lot of fondness for Keita. Um, And I do... I, I also want the best out of life, but I also wanted to kind of portray somebody as being sensuous, but try not to demonize them for being mm. that way. Uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of characters and, and Liesl certainly is one of them where it, like they're plain and they're, you know, plainness equals goodness in that like they're, they're beyond material wants and they're beyond the shallow frivolous things. I love shallow frivolous things. You don't want to know how much money I just spent at Sephora this past week. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, I like pretty things and I like girly things and I don't think that's inherently bad. And I don't think, or I tried not to make Kit to come off as a bad person for wanting those things. 
No, and I don't think she does. I think the relationship between all the siblings is actually the family relationships in general in your book are really given a lot of weight and complexity and the characters develop because she develops through the course of the book. You know, she's changed after she's been taken to the underground and she doesn't remember exactly what happened to her. She's struggling against this, um, you know, this not memory loss, but magical spell or, or memory removal where, um, you know, that's, that's profoundly changed who she is and she's different as a result of that, but not, not so different that she's unrecognizable. Um, but that your, your side characters evolve. And I love seeing that. And I love sibling relationships and I love family relationships. So I do like family relationships. I mean, if, if I had time, if it were a different book, I would try and give Liesl more friends. Um, <laughs> friends are very important to me. I mean, I had my mm-hmm. launch party with two of my friends. I think friendships are very important. So, But just the the nature of Liesl's family is that they're kind of small and isolated, so they really only have relationships yeah. with each other. Yeah. I want to talk about her grandmother a little bit, too, mm-hmm. because I love her. I love Constanza. She's my favorite. <laughs> She's amazing. She's so mean, but in I love a, like, amazing way. <laughs> I delight in writing mean, spiteful, irritable, irascible characters. They're, like, my favorite. Like, Constanza mm-hmm. says all the things that I can't wait till I'm old enough to say without repercussion, basically. <laughs> You know, like that cranky old lady. I cannot wait to be a cranky old lady. <laughs> yep. To have lived long enough to earn the right to just say whatever the hell say you want. whatever you want, even if it's terrible and not nice. Yeah, that's 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 my goal. But it's all <laughs> truthful. I mean, it's not nice, but she's she's laying down some hard truths. I mean, that's 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 my style, though. I mean, you guys all know mm-hmm. on this podcast, oh, I'm yeah. bad cops. So. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I love, I love writing Constanza because I was just like, (laughs) again, I I delight in, in pain. Maybe, maybe that's terrible to say, but it's, it's kind of true. (laughs) Get over it. (laughs) Oh, I have to be really careful now because I've, I've read portions of book two, very, very brief early chapters. And now I'm like, I can't say anything about those things because, because <laughs> book two isn't out in the world yet. Just the first book is. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to keep my mouth shut at this point, but she will, she's not gone. We'll no, see more of her. Gone. She's, she's fine. Well, and it's funny because so winter song is in fact dedicated to my grandmother, my mother's mm-hmm. mother. She's the one who raised me and she's also nothing like Constanza. <laughs> Like at all. My grandmother, my harmony is kind of like the absolute opposite. She was like always giving and loving and making me things and feeding me food and always, you know, so it's like complete opposite of what Constanza is. So Constanza is not based on my grandmother. Uh, Constanza (laughs) is just wish fulfillment on my behalf. It really is like, you know, I think obviously there's going to be an element of wish fulfillment in, in nearly everything that I write, but I think people maybe misunderestimate or not misunderestimate. God, I'm tired. <sighs> people maybe misunderstand which is the wish fulfillment aspects of my book. The wish fulfillment mm. aspects are like Thistle. Thistle is one of my favorite <gasps> characters too. I love her. Because she's so prickly and mean. I love mean characters, I think. And so my wish fulfillment kind of comes out in them. Like, I just want to be that person 
in the corner who says all the hard, uncomfortable truths and doesn't care what anybody thinks about them. <laughs> or to be petty because Thistle is very petty and it's great. I love, I love, I love writing those characters because I, there's no, there's no inhibitions with them. There's no mm-hmm. feeling of, Oh, I ha- I should be nicer. Oh, I should be kinder. Oh, I should be better. Or I, or I should be more noble. There's none of that. They're just like, nah, it's right here. So <laughs> those, those are my wish fulfillment characters. Do I wish for a romance with the Goblin King? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so what is it about him, that character then that interests you? What compels you to write him? If it's not from a romantic perspective, what is it about him that you find interesting? Well, I so obviously the a big seed of this book was the movie Labyrinth, which I loved mm-hmm. as a child and I definitely loved this idea of Sarah, who's the protagonist you know, she has to journey to the underground, solve the labyrinth and save her brother. But I kind of wanted her to stay at the end, you know, and she confronts the Goblin King. I mean, I love the ending of that movie too. I think it's a great ending. I just, you know, cause she says to him at that moment, you have no power over me. And that breaks the spell and she's able to return home. So I love, I love that ending too. But there's a, there was a part of me that always was like, I wonder what the dynamic would have been like if she had stayed and become the Goblin Queen. So that's kind of where it started from. And I liked, this is what I mean by fictionally, I like the idea of a dangerous character, of a mysterious Mm. and dangerous character. I like the fictional idea of that more than I like the real life idea of that. Right. So the whole power dynamic in Labyrinth, even when I saw it as a young age, did intrigue me. So I wanted to kind of explore that from somebody who would we who would who was willing to stay basically what does that say about somebody who takes what's offered and takes this makes the selfish choice to stay and what does that mean what does that do that's kind of where the idea came from um and it it's it's fun in its own way to write mysterious characters because i don't have to reveal everything because i don't know everything <laughs> It's like people have asked me, oh, you know, what's his real name? And I was like, I don't know. Not yet. Anyway, (laughs) he hasn't told me yet. (laughs) I was talking, Renee Atia had read an early draft of, of winter song. And she basically called me and was like, what's his name? And I was like, I I don't know. (laughs) He didn't tell me because it wasn't important to the story. You really are a pantser. I am. It's terrible. And she's more of a plotter than I am, too. So she's like, how could you not know? And I was like, I I just, I I write and things just come up. (laughs) Um, His name is important in book two, but it's, for the writing of Winter Song, I didn't think it was important. It was all about Liesl. It's Liesl's journey. So, you know, his name, Mm -hmm. if she's already made the choice to to leave, his name doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also liked the idea of not giving him a name because to give someone a name is to humanize them. And I didn't really want to do that. I didn't want to make him human, even though it's clear that he had a past as a human being, but he, I didn't want to make him human. I wanted him to be that sort of elemental life-changing force for Liesl. Um, so ultimately his name really didn't matter, but Mm -hmm. I do get that question a lot. What's his name? I don't know. I mean, I think I know, but I can't tell you guys yet. (laughs) 
So we all know about the link with the labyrinth, but what other fairy tales or other influences or mythological references did you think about or incorporate into this story when you were writing it? So obviously the big one was the Earl King, which is a a German, it's a German figure, Germanic figure, I guess, because there's sort of similar figures in Scandinavian mythology. But essentially the Earl King is the king of the fairies. Mm -hmm. There was a poem written by Goethe. Um, It's actually, there's, there's stories about the Earl King's daughter um, who lures unsuspecting men underground. But uh, Goethe actually wrote a poem about the Earl King himself as basically an extended metaphor for death. And I, being goth, I've always been fascinated <laughs> um, with death. Like, not in a morbid sense. I just like the idea of death. And I uh, like to, to ponder death, I guess, both as a cultural personification, because we have a lot of figures representing death, um, from the Grim Reaper to others. Um, but the figure of a lot of these sort of old stories about elves and fairies and things like that are kind of extended metaphors for death. So part of that was the, was, you know, kind of grafting the idea of the Earl King. And and also because Labyrinth's Jareth, the Goblin King is sort of a continuation in, in that kind of mythological line. So he's sort of, he's a version of the Earl King himself. So I definitely looked at that. I also kind of brought in elements of Hades and Persephone because Mm -hmm. of the concept of the underground. It wasn't intentional in, it wasn't that intentional, but it seemed to make sense to me because a lot of these old stories have elves who live on, or fairies who live underground you know, and people who travel to the realm of the fairies, you know, a lot time passes differently. And so there's sort of this kind of life, death, birth, re life, death, birth, rebirth, that whole cycle kind of all seemed to come together naturally to me. So the elements of the Hades and Persephone were in there. Um, but also look, basically <laughs> sex and death, are just two concepts that I think are really interesting to write about. So kind of elements of Little Red Riding Hood were in there. The, you know, because the wolf mm-hmm. in the woods being dangerous. Uh, I even gave Liesl a red cloak for that reason, to, because I wanted that sort of to... And a grandmother. I gave her a grandmother and a yeah. red cloak uh, because of the Little Red Riding Hood. There were some elements of Beauty and the Beast to a lot, of, a lot of these stories almost have that kind of... I was trying to get at some sort of archetypal story, mm-hmm. which is essentially the trope Death and the Maiden, which is what I like. Um, somebody who gives herself up to a monster or to death or, you know, that sort of figure to save the world or to save someone she loves is kind of that trope, what I consider death and the maiden. So I really wanted to get at that. And a lot of fairy tales have that at its root. They, you know, Beauty and the Beast is something like that. Phantom of the Opera is kind of, it's not a fairy tale, but it has elements of that too. Um, Little Red Riding Hood, Hades and Persephone. So I, I, and I don't, and I like fairy tales. I like writing about them. I like researching them. Uh, I read a lot. Um, and for me, I grew up in the West, so Western fairy tales and Western folklore is actually something I'm more familiar with than, you know, for example, like 
East Asian fairy tales, I don't know as well, but they also have their own versions of these sorts of stories. So that was kind of the basic under mythological underpinning that I got at. But also mm-hmm. image imagery wise, I pulled from movies that I loved. Uh, particularly there's a scene in Winter Song where she's crossing an underground lake, which that one is lifted directly from Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lake beneath the Paris Opera House. And um but I pulled that from Phantom of the Opera, which of course has its own mythological underpinnings, but so there's that, but there's also a scene I describe as sconces holding like torches and lamps and candelabras shaped like arms. Mm. And there's a scene in La Belle et la Bête, which is a Jacques, a Jacques Cocteau film about Beauty and the Beast. It was made in like the 50s or 60s. Beautiful black and white movie. Very surreal and very strange and very trippy. But it's a very famous scene where Belle is running through the castle and she's running down this long corridor and there are just these arms that hold candelabras. And these arms kind of move and point the way, showing her which way to go. And I think I, I think I was like 15 years old and I couldn't sleep. I think I was at my grandparents' house. And I, so I like turned on like Turner Classic Movies or something and watched this movie. And, but that image has stuck with me. Mm-hmm. But it's apparently stuck with a lot of other people because it's actually in the filmed version of Angels in America. There's definitely huh. an homage to that scene in La Bella La Bette. It's also in the musical Phantom of the Opera um, and also the movie version of the musical of Phantom of the Opera, the the arms and the candelabra. Mm-hmm. That actually all goes back to La Bella La Bette, which I highly recommend you guys to watch if if, if surrealism, if French surrealism is, is your thing. Which says <laughs> so much about you that you know. like woke up when you're like a, a young teenager waking up and watching that movie in the middle of the night explains so much. I know. <laughs> I know. I feel like, I feel like when you meet my parents, and I tell you stories of what I was like as a teenager, I think everything makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the whole package makes sense to me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I can really see the Beauty and the Beast influence too, because you have the, these scenes where Lisa and the Goblin King are in their, you know, private chambers in the evenings, and. Um, they talk or more often they're playing music and they're just, it's just about this slow, um, getting to know one another over time, which is kind of like what the whole beauty and the beast story is, is just two people like having dinner over and over again until, (laughs) until they form a relationship. Um, but music is a key part of the way that they connect to one another. Um, both Lisa and the Goblin King have music as a common language, And because I know you, I know that you have a background in music. Um, but I was wondering what, you know, what made you decide to have music be such an important component of this book? And why did you choose, um, the music in, in the way that you did? Because you're, you were a vocalist for the most part, right? Yeah. Piano and and voice. So... Before writing this, before writing Winter Song, I was writing a retelling of the magic flute. I think I've talked about this before on the podcast. I mean, I've told Kelly about it. She knows about Mm -hmm. my magic flute retelling because I am a huge fan of of Mozart. And the magic flute, Die Zabelflute, is my favorite singspiel of his, my favorite musical. And 
so I thought, okay, I love this musical so much that I maybe I want to do my own take on it. And I wrote about 60,000 words on my take of the magic flute, and it just wasn't working. The characters are just weren't alive. You know, it was an interesting world, and I love the kind of fairy tale elements of it, but it just wasn't working. And looking back on it now, I didn't realize it at the time, but looking back on it now, I realized that it wasn't working because there was no music in it. Because what I love about the magic flute is not actually the story of the magic flute, it's the music of the magic flute. So I kind of took my love for music and put it into this book because it's it was easier to write about it in this story than it was in the retelling of the magic flute. It would just be too on the nose if I talked about music then. Um, and because of my love of Mozart is why I set the book in the time period it, I did. Mozart died in 1791, so the end of the 18th century, and he sort of died at the beginning of the shift from what we consider cl- the classical period of music to r- the romantic period of music. And I, I don't know if you guys have studied music theory or know much about music history, but the romantic period, is, and, and you can see that shift in literature and in art as well. When people started writing more about feelings and emotions or their paintings were less about lofty intellectual classical subjects like Greek gods or scenes from, um, you know, works of Greek and Roman literature, they started, you know, painting wild landscapes. And so that kind of shift in the sort of cultural zeitgeist is kind of why I set the book at the point it did, because I wanted Liesel's music to sort of get ahead of that. Because I wrote about her writing, her composing as being in kind of in line with all the classical composers and, and sort of their, their rules and um, the sort of mathematical harmonies that are in that period of music that particularly Beethoven as an early person in this movement kind of threw out the window. He was like, I'm going to screw all the rules. I'm going to write music the way I want to write it, The way, write music that gets at the feelings I'm having. And so that was kind of what Liesel does as well. So that's why I picked that particular time period, even though not all the music I've purposefully written into Winter Song is actually based in that time period, particularly Vivaldi is from the Baroque era, so a couple hundred years before this time period. And the reason I picked Vivaldi was at that time, he was sort of, he had sort of fallen off in appreciation, but he was an extremely talented violinist and knew how to write for the violin. So I picked Vivaldi for that reason, also because I personally like his work. So that was the other reason. Um, But also I imagine, this is again spoilers, but I do imagine that when the Goblin King was human, that would be the era he was growing up and listening to music in. Mm. So that's what he carries with him. And a lot of the music of the Baroque era is very intricate. It's not quite so melodic as it is in the classical period, but it's, you know, there's a lot of intricate harmonies and counterpoint. Um, So I picked that particular time period for him, for the Goblin King. And then the more romantic stuff... Uh, Liesel's music kind of predates Schubert, which is probably the closest composer I can think of. Also because Schubert actually wrote a piece of music, a leader or song, set to 
the the poem Du Erkenich or the or the Earl King by Goethe. So there's obviously that very obvious link there. Even though I didn't actually pick that piece con- consciously, I think it was kind of in the back of my head, like oh that's where this this link is. And um, so people other very astute readers have actually pointed that out to me. They're like, oh, have you were you listening to Schubert at the time? And I was like, no, but you were. <laughs> But you did pick up on it, which I am glad that you did. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, I wrote about my love of music because I couldn't do it the first time properly. <laughs> but that's why, you know, like you, you murder all your darlings and you throw them away in a file somewhere. Not that you literally, you know, took pieces of that other book and put them in this one. But, <laughs> you know, you can be a magpie that way. You can kind of keep little bits and pieces and then one day you wake up and you jam them all together and it works. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing about Winter Song is that it is pretty much an amalgamation of all the things that I that I like, that interest mm-hmm. me. Classical music, gothic stories, fairy tales, all that sort of stuff. These are all things that interest me. And I remember when I sent the synopsis to Marie, because she was essentially the first person to even hear about Winter Song before I even wrote it. And when I sent that synopsis to her, her response was, this is the most you thing mm-hmm. you've ever written. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, yes, it's true. <laughs> and and maybe to that's the reason, perhaps, that that is the one that got published. Because it was full of right. all the things that I loved and that I worked on um, sort of subconsciously, I guess. You know, I put everything that I love subconsciously into the work. And because of that passion is probably why my agent wanted to represent it and then sell it. Mm -hmm. I think if you try too hard, it can backfire. Yeah, because that's, that's obvious. You know, I think you can tell when something is too meticulously or deliberately assembled. It loses some kind of I don't know, authenticity or, or spark of life that, that makes it alive in a way it becomes too constructed. Yeah. A lot of my previous work, I think I overthought things and mm-hmm. tried to make it a lot cleverer than it could, than it had to be. <laughs> yeah. And I sort of took the opposite approach this time. I said, okay, don't worry about making it clever. Just write what you want to read and just write mm-hmm. You know, don't worry about making it critically acclaimed or literary or whatever. Just write what you want to read and what is enjoyable to you and all things will follow from there. And I think, it, mm-hmm. I think that's, I think that's what happened. Yeah. So the title winter song was a title that was hard, hard one. It took a long time to come to that title, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. A long time and a lot of input from a lot of different people. Um, but I think it is a perfect title for the book. I think it ends up doing what a title should, which it really does set the mood for the book. And it, um, you know, has lots of different meanings that you can find throughout the book when you think back on it and reflect on it. Um, but you know, what is the story of the title? Why did it, why was it so hard to come up with one? Well, I'm terrible with titles to begin with, (laughs) just in general. I'm bad with titles. Um, so when I was drafting my book, I called it 50 Shades of Labyrinth as a joke. And then, 
But I knew that I couldn't submit a book with that title. So I basically picked the most obvious one and picked The Goblin King. So Mm -hmm. it went on submission to my agent's my agent as the Goblin King, and she put it on submission under that title, too. And it was acquired as the Goblin King. And I I wasn't married to it. You know, I don't know if that title is... I mean, it's evocative in its own way, but some of the feedback we got from older publishers in the house, they heard the words the Goblin King, and they didn't think David Bowie the way a lot of women our generation would. They thought, like, you know, little Hobgoblin... So they were like, eh, let's nix that title and come up with something else. So my editor and agent and I were trying to brainstorm titles that were either evocative. So we literally like just put a list of words together, just words like snow, forest, dark, deep, you know, like, <laughs> you know, like magnetic poetry, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of came up with a list of adjectives and nouns and, and, and music related terms and we came up with some weird titles. Like, we came up with... <laughs> I can't even remember. It was, like, In a Forest Dark. Or, like, you know, kind of... It just... And it wasn't quite getting there. I think one of the titles was The Wolf and the Sparrow. And I was like... Yeah, ah, I remember that one. Yeah, and it's kind of like... Or um, I was like, Liesel and the Goblin King. But then that sounds like a middle grade book. So yep. we really just kind of went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And none of us could kind of come up with titles that we liked. And actually, my editor's friend had read the book, and they were kind of throwing ideas back and forth. And I think she came up with Winter Song. And we're kind of like, well, that's the obvious one. Why didn't we think about it before? <laughs> um, yeah, but that, it, you know, basically it, had, it took someone looking outside the book Mm-hmm. To kind of be like, oh, well, what about these two words that go together? And that's how the story came to be. But I didn't title the book. Oh, no goodness, no. <laughs> <laughs> if it were up to me, all of my books would be titled like untitled or like really obvious titles, you know, just like the most obvious, uninteresting title you can think of. Yeah, I'm not one of those people who has a first title, like who has a, a title before they can write. I know a lot of people are like that, but I am not mm-hmm. one of them. The one thing I need is a first line before I can write the rest of the book, but titles, I know, meh, whatever, it's fine. Well, here's a story, though. The first the first line of Winter Song is not the first line that I originally had. Hmm. Is this because of the prologue? Mm-hmm. My editor requested that I put the prologue in, which is a little bit unusual, I guess, because, at least personally, I'm not somebody who thinks prologues are all that necessary. And often prologues are kind of a crutch, you know, Mm. and it tells you something that you need, that you're going to find out later in the book. So why do you need to know this before you go into the book? That sort of thing. I'm not a, or or a lot of times prologues are really just chapter one of a book and not an actual legitimate prologue, but she wanted a prologue because she wanted it to be clear that Liesel and the Goblin King had a kind of a, a relationship beforehand. She wanted that to be ultimate, ex- extremely clear because I think some of the feedback that she had had from the publisher was like, oh, it wasn't clear at all that they knew each other before. So she wanted a prologue, and, and my editor's suggestion was actually, I don't know, what about a dream sequence? Oh, no. <laughs> and I was like, mm, no. 
and I wasn't interested in doing that. So I wrote kind of like a, a fairy tale instead, mm-hmm. which kind of serves the same point as like a dream sequence. But, um, but yeah, the very first line of winter song that the first line that I started with was beware the goblin men and the words they sell. And that was always like, until I, until the prologue was put in was the first line of every draft. Mm-hmm. And it's still the first line of the first chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know. I guess we can talk more about revision or process questions, but I feel like people need to have read the book if they want to know that. <laughs> mm. We can do a follow-up. You guys can send us your questions for, for JJ about her book writing process. Yeah, and what got changed from the first draft to the last draft, which could mm-hmm. be an interesting topic. Basically, have you sent out, have you yeah? sent out your adult content? Not yet. I mean, there's a lot of other emails I need to catch up on. So basically, (laughs) today's priority was catching up on sleep. Mm -hmm. I asked, three naps too many asking for a friend? No, never. (laughs) Um, But yes, the adult versions of the Sexy Times scenes, I will be sending out to you guys if you sign up for the mailing list, which I will put a link to in the show notes. So I will hold off. Maybe I'll give people about a month to have bought and read the book and mm-hmm. then I'll send out, then I'll send out the scenes. So I'll and put don't them in the guys, the scenes that are in the actual finished product are still pretty racy. Yeah. They're, they're <laughs> Yeah. But we did go through with a fine tooth comb to be like, okay, is this too much? Is this not too much? Is this too much? Is this not too much? And that's <laughs> Okay. So I think we can, I don't know. Unless you guys want to hear more, ask more, ask me more questions about Winter Song. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can move on to our other topics. So, yeah. what are you reading? Um, I am just reading client manuscripts, although I did get um, a book in from the library that I'm really excited about. And now the author's name is escaping me, so let me look it up. But um, the book that just came in from the library is Allegedly by Tiffany D. Jackson. Oh, yes. Which... I've heard really good things about, but it's going to be really a very intense read, I think. Um, but I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so while I was in California, I happened to be there at the same time as Stephanie Garber. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we had lunch together and she's utterly delightful and she has hit the New York Times bestseller list. So congrats I know, to congratulations. Stephanie. So happy for her. Um, so I've already, I had already read Carval, but I bought um, the book, the finished copy to get signed by Stephanie and her line was so long and I didn't have time. To, so I, I told her, I was like, I'm counting on the fact that I'll probably see you somewhere else and then you can sign my book. Um, so I bought Caraval and the finished product is gorgeous. You guys, the print is, Oh, it looks so lovely. It's beautiful. And I also bought Empress of a Thousand Skies by mm. Rhoda Belleza which is a, a sci-fi novel also came out on the same day as winter song. And I'm um, pretty excited to start that also still making my way through my reread of JK Rowling's adult book. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm on the second one, which is about publishing funnily enough. Oh, so interesting. It is. And it, 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 I mean, I think it's, I think it's great. I, I do really, really like her adult, her adult thrillers. Um, but the second one is about book publishing. And so sometimes there are little slight digs and sort of little, little inside joke things 
like clearly somebody who understands the publishing process that are in the book that are actually quite funny to read about. So yeah, that's what I'm reading now. Any, what are you working on aside from, is there anything aside from agenting that you're working on? Um, no, (laughs) nope. That has been my main, my main thing lately. So nothing other than that. Anything other than book two? No, nah, I, I would love to be able to go back to the gym. I just haven't had time because of day job and promotion and Mm -hmm. writing book two. But I think it's come to the point where I'm like, I need to go back to the gym, at least for like my mental health, just to feel better about going. Yeah. So I think I'm going to start going back to the gym, or at least I'm going to make that my what I'm working on. (laughs) Um, Any off-menu recommendations? Any off-menu recommendations? Um, I started listening to a new podcast. Um, I started listening to the British History Podcast, which I wanted a history podcast. I wanted something narrative um, because there are periods of my day where I just need something on in the background while I'm working. I can't really listen to audiobooks while I work. Um, if they are books that I haven't read before. So like I can listen to Harry Potter audiobooks, but I can't listen to new books that are new to me that I haven't read because mm. I get lost. Um, so I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I like my podcasts to have some, something narrative about them. And so I was like, I want to listen to a history podcast. And I had tried a couple of them. Um, for a long time, I was listening to hardcore history with Dan Carlin, and that's an excellent podcast. Um, but it's also really, the episodes are really long. Um, you know, some of them are like four hours. <laughs> so <laughs> it was hard, you know, to listen to that sporadically. I wanted to find something else. I looked around, I tried a bunch of different ones, um, that weren't really working for me until I landed on the British history podcast. Um, and I cannot remember his name. I've got to look up, um, the name of the host, but he has a really pleasant voice and he is really, um, funny and tells these narratives. Um, he starts all the way back in the ice age, like the beginning, um, of Britannia. And so right now I'm only at the part where the Romans have recently invaded, um, and I'm like 15 episodes in, but he's really, um, he, it's really conversational. He talks about it, you know, in a conversational way, there's some swearing, um, there's some, you know, amusing, um, amusing turns of phrase in the ways that he speaks about it is just really fascinating. And I found it really soothing and interesting. Um, and so that is what I have been listening to. And it's been really super great. I'm trying to find his name and I can't find it. So I'll have to put it up. Oh, Jamie Jeffers. There it is. The British history podcast by Jamie Jeffers. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm listening to. It's funny that you say you're listening to history related things. Cause I feel like you're not somebody who particularly liked history. I loved history in the sense that I love, um, I love like documentaries. I love, um, nonfiction books that are, that are narratives. If I can learn about people and events, that to me is really fascinating. But I was always so frustrated by history in terms of just like dates and battles and time periods. And I'm not good at 
retaining that sort of knowledge. So my husband um, was a triple major and one of his majors was history. And he is forever infuriated by the fact that like, I just don't know basic world history stuff. Like I just can't call it to mind and and things that are so simple that like are embarrassingly simple that I am ashamed of not being able to, to know off the top of my head without looking up. Um, you know, and of course he has just this whole wealth of knowledge, um, in his head and I just do not. So I find it fascinating and interesting when it's presented in a narrative format, but I don't, retain it super well. Even now I've been listening to this British history podcast and like, I really probably couldn't tell you stuff that's necessarily happened in any great amount of detail. Um, yeah, cause for whatever reason, it's just kind of goes in my head and then it goes right out of my head, but I do enjoy it. I'm just not, (laughs) I'm just not good at it. I guess. I love history. Oh, I like history I because it gives context so to a lot of different things. But yeah, I just it's like as I remember because I we would talk about writing and I was like, you know, so and so in history, and you're like, oh, that. <laughs> I feel like what now? Who now? What different periods of time and stuff? Like I I couldn't tell you what what those things are. <laughs> I would I could never write historical fiction because I just don't. No, like if it happened more than five years ago, I mean, I still think the nineties was 10 years ago. Oh, well, so do I. So (laughs) that's normal. What are you talking about? (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's normal then. But, but yeah, no, my, my, my context and my record retention in terms of history is not, is not great at all. And I'll admit that it's embarrassing, but I'll admit it. Um, but yeah, you and David, when we all used to live in New York, you guys would like go off about these different historical things. And I would just kind of sit there like, I have no idea what you guys are talking about right now. <laughs> like periods of history, like architecture and, and, and different periods, you know, like I'm just, no, I can't, I don't know, but I, but I like listening to it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no new podcasts for me. I'm, I'm shamefully behind on the, all the podcasts I am actually subscribed to just I haven't had time mm-hmm. this week normally I blast through them and then like looking for more because more, I'm listening yeah. to them at work so but this week I'm just kind of behind on and I didn't realize how many podcasts I was actually subscribed to until I looked at my podcast app and saw all these that I that are just you know not listened to or not played yet um so nothing new on that front I think other off-menu recommendations. I haven't even seen movies recently. I was so disappointed because the flight that I was on did not have in-flight entertainment. Hmm. On like you know, like most nowadays anyway, a lot of planes have like a you know your own personal monitor in the seat in front of you, so you can watch your own. And but this particular plane didn't have that, and they didn't even have you know like a big monitor in the middle that comes down that you can watch a movie on. So, and I was so disappointed, both of my flights, the one out to LA and the one back, neither of them had that. And I like flying is like the only opportunity I have to catch up on movies that have recently been in movie theaters. Like that was how I caught up on Captain America, Civil War. That's how I caught, caught up on like the ghost, the new Ghostbusters movie, like all that. So I was like really disappointed. I was like, oh, this is like my time to catch up, but not this time, I guess. So nothing new for me in terms of off-menu recommendations. 
So then, all right, I guess we can move on to what you're saying. We do have new... Uh, Reviews. Yes, we're super excited. Very excited. So this one is from Dewey Jim. Explains publishing on a level with my agent. I am a multi-published author who continues to find so much to learn in these podcasts. I especially appreciate the straight talk on the reality of finances for authors in today's publishing climate, practical and realistic while not giving in to cynicism. Oh, JJ, we don't give in to cynicism. Oh, yay. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I always worry about being, you know, like such a downer, like, sorry, guys. <laughs> no, we're just being practical. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, that's really great to hear. We we shoot for straight talk. We try to illuminate parts of the process whenever we can. So I'm glad that's been helpful. And our next review is from Jamie Medea. Exactly what I was looking for. I discovered this podcast about a week ago and have already listened to almost every episode. Kelly and JJ are both very smart and honest about the entire process of publishing. They managed to make me both cautious and optimistic about the industry at the same time. This is no small thing, since I have a pretty large tendency to lean toward pessimism in all things. Oh. I feel <laughs> I feel much more informed and even confident after listening to the two of them talk and now feel like I can handle each and every step of this occasionally daunting journey once I decide to start querying. You guys, I feel like... I don't know. I don't know if people like elsewhere in the world are just super cynical. And so we just seem optimistic by comparison <laughs> or, <laughs> or what, but I'm so glad because we do get, we do worry sometimes that we're a little bit too, uh, negative. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess because I'm so used to, you know, a lot of people who are like, you can do it. You can, you know, if you just work hard enough, and blah, blah, your dreams will come true. And I don't want to discount that either. You know, there, you cannot overstate the importance of persistence in this mm -hmm. industry. Persistence more than anything else is probably going to keep you in this industry. But I also don't want to be like, everything's, you know, rosy and beautiful and easy mm -hmm. because I also don't want people to get disappointed or feel like their hopes have been dashed. So that's why I'm like, this is what it's really like you guys, but I'm, I'm glad that it comes across as optimistic. <laughs> um, you know, and I like that these two reviews focus on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, we appreciate, uh, you, you writing these reviews cause we love reading them and we're mm -hmm. glad that they're helping you guys feel more confident or reassured about publishing so mm -hmm. huzzah i don't think we have any questions do we so we do have an email and uh, this question is about sensitivity readers so i just learned about sensitivity readers and had no idea they existed i'm wondering if you could provide information on how to become one thank you so much well, uh, Justina Ireland maintains a database of sensitivity readers, um, and the website is called Writing in the Margins, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. I do know that the concept of sensitivity readers uh, is gaining more prominence these days, particularly with regards to representation of, you know, 
racial representation, uh, disability representation, um, and LGBTQIA plus representation. So I do know that the people are looking for sensitive sensitivity readers. If you would like to become a sensitivity reader, um, I think I believe that there is a frequently asked questions uh, page on the website, um, and you can just you know email Justina and put your you know what you can read, what topics or what subjects you can read for, what your rates are, all that sort of stuff, and you can email that to Justina and she'll put you up in the data in the database. Mm-hmm. I would also say I do know that sensitivity reading is not for everyone. I myself don't do sensitivity reads except for my friends. Um, I don't, I mean, there, there are plenty of things that I can talk about and offer my lived experiences on. Obviously I'm a woman of color. I have bipolar disorder, um, and I'm queer, but I don't, it's not for everyone because there is a lot of work that goes into sensitivity reading that may not necessarily pay off to put it mildly. Um, because the, you know, the author is paying you for your experience and they, but they may or may not take the criticisms well, or they may apply the criticisms that you give them about the representation and do it imperfectly. I, this is something that I've come across and this is why personally I don't offer sensitivity reads because I just don't have the space and the bandwidth to deal with it. Um, but I admire people who do because it, it is quite labor intensive. So Mm -hmm. if you are looking to be a sensitivity reader, also don't sell yourself short. I think Justina says is a base fee of $250 per manuscript. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously the more experienced you are, the better you are. I would absolutely say raise those rates because depending on how long it takes you to read a manuscript, depending on how bad the representation is, how harmful or how hurtful it is to you. That's a lot of, that's, that's, emotional cost that you may or may not want to deal with. So don't sell yourself short, but if you do want to become a sensitivity reader, I do commend you for your generosity basically, because I ain't going to do it. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. so do we have any more questions after that? I think that's the only one. All right. That's all for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about author life, public versus private. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. And you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, available November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Welcome 
to Pub Crawl. No. <laughs> Welcome to episode 61 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. No. Jones, called J.J. <laughs> oh my God, one more time. It's only been slightly over a week. <laughs> is all for this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about your author life. I can't remember what we just <laughs> to call it. <laughs> author life, public versus private. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed and created by Aaron Bowman, the author of Rev. What is it? The new one. It's Retribution Rails. Retribution Rails. I was like, Revolutionary Road? No. (laughs) (laughs) Retribution Rails.